0: what they did back in 2008 they said well we're going to create a ton of new base money we're going to buy some of those assets to reliquify the system and so it's not an exaggeration to say it's essentially like a ponzi scheme it's just something that has to keep growing in order to function
1: hello there how are you all how was your weekend
0: You having a good time
1: rail for one again a 7-1 win against holmer green we've got nine games to go nine games to try and win the league fingers crossed it's all going well Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today on the show, I've got the legendary Lynn Alden back. Now, you know we have this rule, we try and do every show in person, but Lynn produces such amazing content sometimes, occasionally I allow us to break this rule. And she recently wrote an article about how the Fed is going broke. And so I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to see her in Miami or wherever we'll see her next. So... Danny reached out to Lynn and we made this show. It's an absolute cracker. So you got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. You can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Or you can join our Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. Jump into our Discord. You can tag me, Danny or Ben and catch up with us then. Okay. Enjoy the show. I'll speak to you soon. Lynn, hi. Happy New Year. How are you?
0: You too. How are you?
1: Yeah, good. It's weird. It's like, I'm wishing you Happy New Year and it's March. Oh, <laughs> because well, you haven't talked in a while, I guess. I, I know. You're too busy. You've been too successful. I barely get to talk to you anymore. How's, how's the start of your year been?
0: Uh, pretty good. I'm trying to work on a bunch of different things. Uh, my book's taken up a lot of time, so I've, I've been trying to limit my bandwidth wherever possible.
1: All right. Well, we've got a lot to get into, but tell me a little bit about this book.
0: Well, I actually, uh, I finished the very early first draft. Uh, like I said before, it's a book about money. And so now I, have, now I have to spend a tremendous amount of time editing it, which is, you know, <sighs> so it's, it's still nowhere near completion, even though it's technically, you know, a written book.
1: Can't you get someone else to do that for you?
0: Well, I mean, I, in the final step, I will. Yeah. But, the, but this, is, this phase of the editing is the part where, you know, I want to make sure that my ideas are expressed as clearly as possible.
1: Do you have a title? Can you share it? Or is that under wraps?
0: That's still being worked on. Ah, oh, damn it. I thought I might get an
1: exclusive <laughs> then. Well, listen, I can't wait. Uh, I will definitely be reading that, and I will be pestering you to come on and talk about it. Uh, but we have something else to talk about. You've written the most uh, amazing article. So, Danny sent me this. Well, actually he actually texted me. Uh, is about three weeks ago. He said, have you read Lynn's latest article about the Fed going broke? I was like, no. He's like, you've got to go and read it. Uh, Amazing article. Thank you again. I I don't know how you keep producing so much uh, incredible content, but uh, one of the most interesting things for me was kind of like starting to see that those layers of like, we have accounts with the banks, the banks have accounts with the Feds. And I'd never really kind of got that link, but the relationship between the banks and the Fed is very similar to my relationship with the bank.
0: Exactly. And actually, we... we this this came up a little bit in our euro dollar discussion Mm. from a while ago about a series of nested ledgers right so uh, a central bank has assets, which in the older days used to be say gold, for example. Now they're often government bonds, mortgage-backed securities, other things like that. And then they have liabilities, which are the monetary base of that country. Um, And so the United States, the Federal Reserve's monetary base, uh, their liabilities, that's the monetary base of the country. That's basically base dollars. Like at the end of the day, that's what a dollar is. Uh, It's a direct liability of the Federal Reserve and so you can have that in two primary forms one is physical banknotes right if you hold physical cash it's it's a direct liability of the of the fed and two banks store their cash uh, with the Fed in digital form, it's just an entry on the on the on the Fed's ledger, and that's a direct liability of the Fed. And so those are the, those two components make up the monetary base. And then what banks do is they essentially multiply it. So when you have a deposit at the bank, you have an IOU that is is for a dollar, but they have way more IOUs than they have. Uh, base cash uh, because they know that most people are not going to all redeem them at once or even try to um, and so you basically have this fractional reserve system and there's actually a, I didn't go in, in this article but then the third layer would be international uh, you know euro dollar system basically you can have a foreign bank they have a deposit at a domestic bank and then they further fractionally reserve it for you know people that that might, might be holding dollars with them and so you have a series of fractional reserve, IOUs built on fractional reserve IOUs at the end of the day are a claim on the liability of the Fed. Or in another case, if it was Bank of England, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, that, that liability side of the central bank is the monetary base of the country. Yeah. And one of the other
1: things, which we will get into, is it just didn't cross my mind or I'd never really had it explained to me, but how the Fed actually d- generates money. I mean, that whole part of the article, how they, what is it, about 100 billion a year?
0: Sure. Yeah. If you look at if you look at a uh, commercial bank for a second, before we get into central banks, commercial banks have assets and liabilities, and then they have a thin amount of equity that represents the difference between their assets and their liabilities. And so that their their liabilities are our deposits in various forms checking deposit savings deposit certificates of deposit they, they usually pay pretty low interest rates um, and that represents our assets their liabilities then their asset side is is usually higher interest yielding things like you know mortgages and other types of loans uh, as well as various securities like you know treasury bonds or or other types of securities that pay a higher interest and they make money because their assets pay a, a larger interest rate than their liabilities, and they also charge various fees, and you know that that basically represents their their income at the end of the day. Now, a central bank actually works quite similarly. You know, the the bank uh, holds their cash at the Fed uh, and, and earns interest for it. The Fed also has liabilities in the form of all those banknotes that are obviously zero yielding because they're just physical cash, and then they have an asset side which consists of government bonds. Mortgage-backed securities, sometimes other types of assets as well, that historically most of the time have paid a higher interest rate than their liabilities. Uh, but what changed starting, uh, you know, in, last year was that now their liabilities, at least for the Fed, and this I think applies to a number of other central banks, now pays a higher average interest rate than their assets. And you know, historically, the reason why central banks are set up like this is to be somewhat independent. I mean, the idea is that you know they're not an, they're not a direct branch of the government. The president can't just you know give the the head of the central bank a phone call and say, "Hey, we have an election coming up, cut interest rates and boost things a little bit, or we're going to pull your funding." Right? It, you're you're supposed to have some degree of separation, even though at the end of the day, the government still sets the terms for the central bank uh, and usually you know elects people that you know appoints people that oversees it. Um, but by having longer terms. And uh, staggered terms that are different from the current, you know, ruling administration of a country. There's some degree of of separation, kind of like, say, a Supreme Court or something like that, like almost like a different branch. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the system we've been operating under. And it, it's kind of flipped on its head recently.
1: Well, I think we should just work through the steps of understanding because we're going to work towards why the Fed is broke or going broken. What that potentially means and, and i'm going to make an assumption like the problems that you've identified with the fed are probably very similar to the bank of england
0: yeah you're going to see this in most things any central bank that's rapidly raised interest rates is is probably in a similar boat to, to varying degrees um and that's because you know historically we've had so 40 years or so of steadily declining interest rates and so if the if the if a central bank holds say government bonds from you know several years ago uh, chances are that interest rates now are lower than their average assets that, that were purchased over a period of time and generally have longer average duration. Um, and part of their liability side is zero yielding because of the, the physical currency part, right? So they, they kind of start with an advantage where it, it's actually pretty hard for their liability side to have a higher average interest rate than their asset side. Uh, and if that happened to a normal bank, I mean, that's if, if a normal bank has basically negative interest income, And or if its liabilities exceed its assets, it's basically game over, Um, whereas a central bank is different. And so right now you have a period where because central banks have raised interest rates so quickly, and for the first time in in decades, they have higher interest rates than even the the prior cycle, uh, they're at a phase where their their liabilities are paying out higher interest rates. And so they have negative interest income, and then uh, this varies based on the bank. But now that that interest income is eating away their tangible equity, and so many of them have either on the on the verge of having negative equity, or or perhaps some of them already do.
1: All right, so we'll go through this step by step. Uh, I think people always appreciate this when we keep it quite easy. Let's talk about the relationship or how the uh, kind of high we call them high street banks. I don't know what you call them in the U.S., but how they tend to work. Uh, and yeah, one of the, I'm just going to throw in there. One of the interesting things about this is. Uh, when I was discussing it with Danny, he who's he, you know, he brought up the point that's like, we're really just lending money to the bank. We don't realize it, but when we deposit money with the bank or we get paid, we're really giving them an ultra low interest loan.
0: Yes, yeah, so that's exactly what you're doing, uh, and and basically it's it's one of the cheapest source of funding available. I mean that that's a, that's that's a key thing that a bank does, is that they're able to borrow interest very very low, um, and then they're able to lend it out at, at higher interest rates and collect that. And there's obviously, there's very different types of banks. There are investment banks, there are commercial banks. Some banks are very simple, some are very complex. But at the end of the day, what their primary purpose is, is they're, you know, they're providing checking services, they're providing saving services, they're, you know, they're they're uh, providing services. But at the end of the day, those are, uh, you know, a liability for them, an asset for us. And so they're borrowing money. It's actually insurance companies kind of do the same thing. You know, they collect premiums, they pay out claims, But in the middle, they're they're holding this big float, and they can generate you know they can invest that float. They can collect income on their investments by holding things like bonds, and then therefore that that's that's represents income for an insurance company. And you essentially see the same thing with a bank. Basically, most of the modern financial system that we build up over a long period of time is this kind of arbitrage where. Banks are arbitraging the fact that you know they have a bunch of depositors that are coming and going, but in aggregate, most of their total assets—I mean, to- their total liabilities—are not changing very frequently, and so they have this—they have this kind of permanent, low-cost source of borrowing that they can lend out for longer periods of time in slightly higher-risk uh, capacities. And by having diversification, by having sufficient liquidity on hand to with handle to to you know with, with handle withdrawals, most of the time they're fine, and they generate that income, and then they you know they pay themselves, they pay their shareholders. Uh, it's basically a, a big middleman operation, and that that's how things work. And obviously, you know, back a long time ago, this was a really valuable service because, you know, if you're talking about like say depositing gold coins at a bank, and getting like a banknote for them. You know, you're speeding up. You're you're getting better divisibility. You're getting all these services. Even today, many of us use banks because we're getting something from the relationship. We're we're able to you know connect into this big global set of ledgers, move money around, not have to store a bunch of physical cash like in our home. Obviously, there are some recent alternatives that we can use, like say Bitcoin for example. But prior to Bitcoin, this is kind of the best we have, uh, and so that that's the world we live in.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people probably don't, well, a bit like the whole financial system, but don't really realize how this works. I mean, I would, you know, if I was super honest, I would have said, you know, certainly when I was maybe like 18, 19, 20 years old, my assumption was when I deposit money with them, they just hold that money and I, I then access it and they make their money off the services they provide me. And like, I know a lot of those services are now, but, you know, provided like close to free. But I don't think people realize that the bank is actually then, taking a risk with your money by lending it out. And also, in some ways, taking a higher risk by you know, fractionally, you know, lending it on a fractional reserve basis, which means that if there is some kind of like global economic crash or some difficult financial situation we go into, there can be a run on the bank and it can risk your deposits.
0: And that's exactly what happened going into 2008. So in, in 2007, for example, in the United States financial system, there were $23 dip- dollars worth of deposits for every $1 of bank cash, right? So basically there there's tons and tons of I for every $1 that a typical bank had uh, at deposit with the fed, uh, or stored up in, in vault cash, you know, little, little, you know, in their ATMs or in their, in their vaults, um, and. When that starts to, you know even even fdic insurance or other types of insurance are not enough to cover massive bank failures those are meant to cover if if one like bank messes up and they you know they go insolvent the system has insurance to cover depositors so that there's you know so that uh, in a typical operating basis people don't have to worry about their bank failing as long as they're within those insurance coverage uh ceiling limits Uh, but if you have a widespread failure where there's all these claims for base dollars that vastly exceed the number of base dollars. And uh, instead, banks have a lot of exposure to risky illiquid loans that are either unable to be moved around easily uh, and converted back into cash, or if they are at risk of defaulting and therefore losing a portion of customer deposits. Uh, And so what, what they did back in 2008, in part, was that they created a ton of new base money and they said, "Well, we're going to create a ton of new base money. We're going to buy some of those assets to re the system." And so, it, I mean, it's not—it's not, it's not an exaggeration to say it. it's essentially like a Ponzi scheme. It's just <sighs> something that has to keep going in order and keep growing in order to function.
1: Well, that was going to be one of my next points to you, but I, I did want to bring up. Um, me and Danny had a guy on the show recently. Uh, I, I think he goes by in the name of Regulatory Jason on Twitter. Um, is that is that the correct guy, Danny? Jason Brett? I yeah, regular
2: Jason. Jason Brett, he's called.
1: Yeah, he. So he worked for the FDIC during the 2008 fi- financial crisis. It was fascinating, and he was playing us a video. Uh, and I think what some people didn't realize, like, is that FDIC insurance is limited. I think it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but some people might have had like twenty million dollars with a single institution, and. You know, you could lose the vast majority of that, and you know, and we have a similar insurance in the UK, Lynn. It's much worse. I think it's about eighty thousand pound you're covered for, and you know, uh, I'm not fortunately one of the one of those people who could have maybe half a million in a bank account. But if I did, I would be thinking, well, I need five bank accounts here, so I because I know you have separate protection for for each bank, but I just don't think some people realise that risk, and then when you layer that on, like you said. This is essentially a Ponzi scheme. I mean, I don't know any other way to describe it, because if they keep fractionally reserve lending out the money, and they're successful sometimes or keep bringing more money in, then they've got more, like a higher base, to increase those fractional reserve lendings. But like I say, if there's some kind of economic contraction, what happens?
0: Yeah, what happens is either uh you let's say it was a harder money scenario let's say let's say the monetary base was gold and these were all claimed for gold and you had five times as many claims for gold then the answer was uh you know some of those claims would not be met those would be you know defaulted on and people you know thought they had deposits but they were fractionally reserved and they're you know some of them are gone now in the current system because the monetary base is flexible it's basically just it's it's a bank it's a central bank ledger instead what generally happens is if if the system starts to collapse starts to freeze up like it did in 2008 they instead rapidly increase the monetary base and so you you instead kind of spread it out via inflation and currency dilution rather than defaults um, and so that that's kind of the current era that we're in. And one way that, that you can, when you zoom out, it kind of goes back to that thing. Like if, if a product is free, I mean, you're not, you're not the customer, you're, you're, you're the product yeah. for someone else being a customer. And so for example, if, if you're, you know, there are custodians out there, right? If, if you're, for example, an ETF is in many ways a custodian they're holding a bunch of stocks for example and they they're a wrapper around stocks and they charge a very low you know expense ratio to hold those stocks or if they're an active etf to choose which stocks to hold but even if it's just a passive etf they're just following an index they're basically holding the stocks for you they're administrating the details and charging a small fee for it and that's a that's a custodian relationship. Same thing. If you if you have gold in a vault somewhere, normally you're paying a very small fee in order to maintain that because you know they're not lending your gold out. Uh, you know their their income comes from you as the customer. Whereas if you're if you're not really paying much or even if you're getting paid, then you're essentially the product uh, you're, you know, in this case, you're providing a low interest rate loan to them and the, the relationship we have with the bank is a little bit of both because in some ways we do, we do pay fees, you know, we might pay fee for a wire transfer or something like that, but we also, you know, earn, earn interest, or at least we used to, and now we kind of do around the margins uh, because we're, we're the ones providing um, that, that low cost loan to them. And this, this is the system we've, we've been in for quite a while.
1: You know, you're you're essentially my uh, you know, financial system Jesus. I always refer to you, Lynn, <laughs> for any questions regarding anything to do with the financial system. But, but so, uh, for me, it'd be really interesting to understand, are there any pro from your perspective, are there any pros to a fractional reserve system? Is it something that is beneficial? Uh, is it something that... Uh, is beneficial but is exploited or abused like how do you generally feel about the idea of fractional reserve
0: lending so i, I generally separate beneficial and harmful as that's one axis versus inevitable or not inevitable so I, I think i think kind of the way i put it is that it's inevitably going to happen at least with the with the current and the prior level of technology that we had for the past couple centuries that is essentially Anytime you have a custodial service, like you know, you're you're depositing your gold, you're getting claims for that gold at a future date, those people inevitably realize, wait a second, you know, most people don't come and, and take the gold out at the same time, and therefore, uh, I can use this. And then you start to get market pressures. Like, you know, all the all these different custodians are holding your gold and they're all charging fees. And then someone says, wait a second, if I if I lend 20% of this out. I can generate some in- income from that, and then, then I can charge my customers no fees, and they all want to use my service instead of my competitors. And if they don't disclose that to customers, it's fraud. Uh, but if they do disclose that, customers, customers might say, "Well, I mean, if you're loaning out 20% of it, that sounds reasonable. If they're, you know, secure lending practices and so forth, it's 80% backed by gold, is 20% backed by." you know, uh, you know, less liquid loans. Sure. I'll I'll take that trade off. Um, and then another one might come along and say, we're, we're going to lend out 40% of it. And not only are we going to make the custodian free, we're going to then pay you a little bit as profit sharing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's kind of, I I think it's one of those things where if you have a mismatch in speed between the claims and the underlying, right. So gold is slow and, and, you know, bank accounts are quick, you're going to get that arbitrage. And banks are going to make use of that arbitrage. That's why once fractional reserve banking was a thing, it spread everywhere. Um, and so I, I think it's one of those things where it's inevitable in that current era of technology. Uh, basically, market forces are going to keep pushing in that direction. It's gonna, it, whenever they push it too far, it's going to blow up. And so it, it's less that I view it as good or bad; is that I view it as inevitable. Now, I think there there are ways. You know, I think you know if, if you had. A bare asset that could settle quickly. There's less of a reason to fractionally reserve it, and uh, basically, whenever it attempts to be fractionally reserved, it's much more likely to break. It's, you know, because people can pull it out quicker. There's less of a reason to put up with that risk, right? So, I think that in a, basically, as technology changes over time, with with Bitcoin, for example, I, I think that that can squeeze out the need for it. Uh-huh. But I think it's it's basically inevitable over the past number of centuries that, it, that it's going to be there.
1: And I think that's a really good uh, place where you can almost compare and contrast what's happened with our industry over the last year to 18 months, in that, look, we know what happened in 2008, the banks did fail. And when the banks failed, they were able to be bailed out by the government. Whatever it was, $800 billion, uh in the, uh, uh, relief for the banks uh, back in 2008. Uh, and also, the FDIC you know, insurance does exist as as a, a potential bailout. That when you have um, un, let's call it unsound money, the ability to print to protect yourself, the incentive model allows that. But when you look at what happened within our industry over the last year and a half, nobody could print Bitcoin to protect. And as you said, it was a bearer asset that can settle quickly, and people did try and withdraw. And that's why we saw things break.
0: Exactly. I think I think when you have the underlying settlement asset move move as quickly as something like Bitcoin does, it, either fractional reserve banking doesn't make sense or the ratios that, that are workable are so much lower than the current ratios we have now that you can get up to like say twenty three to one, for example, that type of ratio completely goes away when the underlying settlement asset can move very quickly and you don't really get any advantages um other than yield for having it in one of those. So so for example, back in you know, the the free banking days, besides yield, the advantage you got for putting your 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 gold in a bank is one, you didn't have to you didn't have to worry about cussing it anymore. Uh, and two, you, you're now tied into this telecommunic telecommunications connected ledger system and you can move claims around faster. So you basically you put it in, you get, you know, higher velocity from it. Um but in an, in a world where it is safer to, uh, you know, secure the underlying. Let's say, for example, Bitcoin multisig. You, don't, you don't only have to worry about storing mass amounts of gold in your home. And two, if the underlying moves just as fast as bank ledgers do, um, then there's there's less of a reason uh, to ever put it at risk in any sort of fractional reserve way, or at least any significant fractional reserve way. Um, and so I think that's that's the yeah that's the changeover.
1: This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, the importance of self-custody has never been clearer. This last year has been full of reasons to get your Bitcoin off exchanges, and Ledger makes that so easy for you. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And I've been a Ledger customer since 2007, and I absolutely love the products, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com. Which is shop.ledger.com. Dot dot Next up, we have Bitcasino. Established in 2013, Bitcasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other, Bitcasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. And with 24 7 live chat support, you can get all the help you require. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B I T C A S I M O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. We are pleased to welcome our new sponsor, Iris Energy, to What Bitcoin Did. Now, as you've probably noticed, we have been increasingly covering Bitcoin mining on the show. And as the team at Iris Energy share mine and Danny's values, They're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did and for you, our listeners. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner who has used 100% renewable energies since inception. Iris Energy targets markets with low cost, excess renewable energy, and they build and operate their own proprietary data centers. And the team is led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across infrastructure, renewables, and digital assets. In fact, Iris Energy's Nasdaq IPO was the only Bitcoin mining IPO to be led by top-tier investment banks, including JP Morgan and Citi. Now, Iris Energy know that Bitcoin mining can be done sustainably, supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem, as well as the energy transition. Iris Energy is the lead-in 100% renewable energy miner. And if you want to find out more about them, then please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co or look up their ticker IREN on NASDAQ. Also today, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. With everything that happened last year in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Leden is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to Leden.io, which is L-E-D-N dot and so is that a reason why the cost of capital is higher when you're trying to borrow from, say, a Bitcoin lender? If you go and look at Ledin's rates or Unchained Capital's rates, they're kind of 11%, 12 13%. Is it because the entire incentive model is different and the risk profile is different and there is no bailout? I mean, is part of the reason the cost of capital for dollars and pounds is a lot lower is that there is essentially always a bailout?
0: I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know... if one thing is that rates went up a lot recently. So even, even in the United States, for example, mortgage rates now are a lot higher than they were a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, essentially, there's different rates depending on what um, you know, percentage of the loans you can expect to fail. Or the, or the cost of administering those loans, right? It's, it's easier to make a small number of big loans, for example, than a large number of small loans because you have more overhead costs that you, have to, you have to cover with, with those interest rates. Um, on the other hand, there's also risk to consider. So, for example, if you're, if you're lending money to people to, to speculate on stocks with, for example… You know, that's going to be a pretty high interest rates. Um, or if, if someone's piled up credit card debt, um, you're going to charge them a pretty high interest rate. Uh, whereas if someone is buying a, you know, a reliable home, um, if they're, you know, if, if they're doing something that's considered low risk with it, um, they get a lower rate. So really, it's about the cost of, of administration uh, and it's the risk that's being made. And then of course, there's market forces. If, if, if some company identifies a need that is just not being met anywhere, they can they can charge, you know, maybe they, they can get a lot of money from interest rates because they don't really have competition. And as soon as someone figures out, hey, they're basically a gold mine over there, uh, you know, they can come in and they can charge lower rates and then they, you know, that that market can go back down to whatever makes sense. So really, it comes down to risk adjusted uh, and uh, overhead adjusted. Uh, are what determine interest rates for the most part.
1: So when we look at the central bank, how would they how would you say they differ? What are the key differences between them and say a, like a high street bank that I would use?
0: So they're one layer down. Um, so basically they're at the they're at the heart of the system, whereas uh, you know major banks are the layer up. So uh, you have a, an account with a bank, um, they do. All, they provide services for you, and they have assets that back up those deposits. And some of those assets are stored at the central bank, which are liability for the central bank, which are then backed up by things like government bonds or other assets on the on the central bank balance sheet. So that's the main difference: is that you know rather than a free banking system where every bank you know, has its own underlying assets like gold, for example, and has claims to them. Instead, most systems around the world are, are now central banking, which is that they're all connected to the central bank ledger. Uh, so that's the one difference is just the layer. And then the second difference is really about, you know, what happens if they go insolvent, right? So for example, if a normal bank goes insolvent, I mean, assuming it doesn't get a bailout, um, then it's at risk of, you know, uh, basically some sort of liquidation, forced buyout, some sort of uh, thing like that. They have to be basically reconstructed, Um, whereas a central bank technically can survive with negative equity. Um, And and so they they don't really have risk of bankruptcy in the same way that a normal bank does. They have different laws that govern their accounting, um, and they have just overall different constraints. Um, So that's kind of the main difference there can there
1: be a run on a central bank in the same way there is a run on commercial banks or can a run on a commercial bank lead like if it was a uh you know nationwide economic situation where people were trying to withdraw their money say like it happened in 2008 can that lead to a run on a central bank
0: the short answer is not really so A bank run can happen in a couple of different ways. A normal bank, the reason a normal bank run can happen uh, is, you know, you don't trust that bank. You're worried they're going to go bankrupt. They're not going to pay you back. So you pull your money out. And you have two choices to do with that money. You can either hold it in cash um or you can then you or you can shift it to another bank you know let's say you you're worried about bank x you want and but you think bank y is safe and so you pull it out to, to bank y um a, a central bank's a little bit different in one there's there's no alternative at least within that country's currency system right so this there's, there's no competitor central bank that they're going to rush to Um now if you look if you look at international situations that's different but for example you know there, there's no world where Bank of America, for example, wants to pull out of the Federal Reserve because what are they going to do with it, right? There's no other, there's no other thing to put it in. Number two is the central bank controls how much physical currency that there even is. Uh, And so they have two sides of their monetary base, which is bank reserves and physical currency. And, you know, you can get a situation, I mean, if enough people want to do bank runs um, or, you know, if you had something like that, there's there's only so much physical currency out there that they can even pull into. And so if enough people try to do bank runs, you'd actually get told no, even if the bank wasn't bankrupt. Like, even if it wasn't insolvent, they would just say there's literally a cash shortage Um, And we can't meet that demand for, for, you know, for for your claims being pulled out. Um, And the central bank is what determines, you know, every year, for example, the Federal Reserve tells the, you know, the Bureau of of Engraving and Printing how much physical currency they want to order to determine basically what percentage of their monetary base they want to be in that physical form. So they, by, by basically controlling the parameters of what you can even withdraw from, uh, they can avoid any sort of bank run scenario. Now, they have other they have other risks or downsides from having negative equity, uh, and there's other risks that, a, that they can run into, but a bank run isn't really one of them.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. So, another thing, can you just explain, I think I must have asked you this like five times in the past, and every time I have to get you to come back to it, but can you explain what the reverse repo market is again? Stop laughing at me, Danny. Sure. Revert...
0: A reverse repo is basically um, if if financial institutions or pools of capital have all this extra cash, all this extra liquidity. Um, you know, for example, actually going back to your prior question uh, or your prior point, a lot of people don't know that if you have too much money in a bank account, it's, it's exposed. It's above the FDIC insured limit, right? So if you if you have a million dollars, where do you stick it, right? You can either stick it in a multiple different bank accounts, or you can stick it into something that is perceived as safer. One option, for example, is treasury bills, right? Because you know, you're not, you, you know, you, your you're liability is the US federal government rather than a specific banking institution. So you can put a you can put billion dollars in the treasury bills if you want to. Another option is that you can put them into something like money markets, and they hold a bunch of short-term commercial paper, uh, as well as things like T-bills. And one of the things that they do, if they have all this extra cash, and if the central bank is offering reverse repos, they can take that cash and give it to the the Fed, uh, and then they get T bills in return, right? So they're basically lending money to the Fed and then getting T bills, uh, and that's basically a is it's a, a way way to push uh, liquidity away and get collateral. Because especially at an institutional level, you can do things with T-bills. You can, you can lend them out. You can use them as collateral. And one way to think about reverse repos is uh, you know they're the opposite of normal repos, which is essentially that if, if you're an institution that has T-bills, and for whatever reason you need cash, you need something even more liquid, you can deposit the T-bill with the Fed, get a short-term loan that's collateralized by that T-bill. That that's a normal repo, and reverse repos is just the opposite of that. You're, you're giving them excess cash, and you're getting T bills.
1: This whole thing must be an accounting nightmare.
0: Things must go wrong. Well, I mean, for example, in 2019, you had the repo spike. That's yeah. why the Federal Reserve had to get so active in the repo markets. Um, that's why whenever you have a big crisis, you have a big alphabet soup of programs that that arise. So, in 2008, for example, there's all sorts of, you know, the, the central bank had to do a you know dozen different programs so they, they basically add liquidity to the system. They want to make, you know, T bills relatively fungible with cash, for example, to avoid liquidity shocks. And the same thing happened in twenty twenty when, you know, uh, global trade dried up. Everybody still has all these dollar-based debts. So everyone says, "Okay, we're going to sell T-bills and get dollars to pay our debts." That crashes the treasury market. So then the Fed has to say, "No, no, no, stop doing that. Uh, you can you can use your T-bills to get loans. We'll buy some T-bills from you with new cash. Uh, we'll give you know we'll give you loans based on other collateral. There's other sorts of uh, all sorts of programs that they do because, like you said, this is at the end of the day kind of an accounting nightmare, and it's basically your 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 administering a gigantic ledger that's that's always kind of increasing in size and complexity
1: okay like now i think we need to work towards why <laughs> why are they are going to go broke or why they are broke uh, and what that means so um in your article you talked about in 2021 the federal reserve earned 100 billion in uh, interest income we talked about that so i mean i mean my first question on that is uh why do they target making a profit and what What do they do with that interest that they earn?
0: So they don't directly, they don't, they don't, they're not supposed to really do their actions based on making a profit and they're not incentivized to because they have to give all their excess profit to the treasury. Okay. Right. So basically the reason that they, yeah, the reason that they make a profit is for independence. Like I said before, if, if they, if they were just an arm of the government, then they they would be reliant on funding by the government, um, and they could be told to do all sorts of stuff right before an election, for example. Um, but instead, by operating, you know, almost like a, an independent uh, agency, and there actually there are central banks around the world that are publicly traded. Uh, it doesn't really mean that much, but they but they still technically are. They're publicly traded. Um, the U.S. the Federal Reserve's not, but but some are. Um, so you have this degree of of independence because they're not on paper insolvent they have liabilities they have assets uh they generate their own income they cover their own expenses and then to avoid them operating such a way that they're a a profit you know they have a monopoly so you don't you you know you want to control their their activities to some degree and so they have to pay their excess profits above their you know their their baseline expenses to the government um and so that that's historically how the fed is operated now, the Fed's kind of different than other central banks in that it's a public-private partnership, um, and so it's a little bit more complex. But then the day, it's it's just kind of this this semi-autonomous entity, but that is nonetheless overseen by the government. And so they, you know going back to the assets and liabilities, their main assets are treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And their main liabilities are bank reserves and physical bank notes. And so for most of Fed history, their assets paid a higher interest rate than their liabilities. And so after covering their expenses, they earn tons of money, $100 billion, and then they give all that to the Treasury. Um, And so in, in some sense, you can think of that as, you know, the Treasury has to pay interest to the Fed because the Fed holds a lot of Treasury securities. But then the, all that money just goes right back to the treasury. Um, basically, that almost, almost like that portion of the debt is like zeroed out because any interest they pay on is, is essentially going right back uh, to the treasury.
2: Can I just ask a question? So, what's the distinction that makes them independent if they have to give all their profit back to the government?
0: What makes them independent is that they are self-financing, uh, and so they're they're required to give excess money to the government. Right? They're not. It's not like every year. Congress has to authorize money to go to the Fed to pay salaries, for example. Like, let's say NASA, NASA, you know, the U.S. Space Agency, uh, you know, their operations, their employees are paid by authorizations of Congress. And if for whatever reason Congress just says you don't get money this year, well, they're, I mean, they're out of luck. I mean, they they just would have to, you know, not operate. They'd have to shut down. Uh, Whereas the a central bank, because they're a self-generating industry uh, you know entity they're not reliant on these specific all you know funding authorizations from Congress and instead they're they're left to kind of make their own money but then they have to give excess money to the government so it's kind of this attempt at decentralization now it obviously runs into limits during war for example or major crises central bank independence kind of goes out the window to varying degrees but during most of the time, that is that is basically an attempt by the institutions that are constructed in order to make it more decentralized than it would be if the central bank was just a direct arm from the government. Right, and so are there other private shareholders of the Federal Reserve or is it
2: is it just the government?
0: Uh, there are, basically it's owned by the commercial banking system. Okay. Uh, and so commercial banks own shares uh, in the Federal Reserve and they they do get a small dividend from from that. And they also they get to pick the board seats of their, you know, the, the Federal Reserve split into 12 regional Federal Reserve banks. And so they get to pick the majority of the board seats of their of their local Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, and then the FOMC, which is the Federal Open Market Committee uh that's that's you know the entity that determines what interest rates are going to be what's going to happen with qe that kind of thing uh that's made up from a combination of federally appointed officials right so they're you know appointed by the president and confirmed by the senate um as well as uh, a subset of the the heads of those twelve uh, Federal Reserve banks, and so it, it's basically this this public-private hybrid that is, you know, for the most part controlled by the federal government. Uh, but but basically, the ownership is officially uh, by the commercial banks. And like I said before, there are some like um, I mean, you know, Swiss Swiss's bank and Japan's central bank. Those those actually have uh, publicly tradable shares that you can buy. Uh, so the ownership state can technically be owned elsewhere, but it, it usually doesn't mean much.
1: It all sounds a little bit like, um, hmm, how do I put it, like an old boys club. Like they they all can work together, perhaps collude together. And that doesn't feel like, if the the commercial banks are shareholders in the Fed,
0: it doesn't feel like it's truly independent. Well, I guess it depends on independent from whom. It's certainly not independent from the banking system. Mm. Uh, And, you know, when it was made, I mean, it was kind of a compromise between the banks and the government. Right, the bank said, "Well, we're not going to give you all the power," and the federal government says, "Well, we're going to take at least some of the power," and that's that's kind of the arrangement that they that they came up with. That it's, it's it partially serves the banks, it partially serves the people, right? Because you're you know the people, you know the the one who put Jerome Powell in charge, you know it's it's a appointed by the president confirmed by the Senate. We vote for these people, right? So there's, there's basically public representation into the control of the fed independently, uh, or I mean, indirectly, and then there's banking input into the control of the fed. And so basically you have, you have those two directions of power that goes into the, the federal reserves governance structure. Now, the, the main benefit that comes from that is that they are independent in a near-term sense, right? So for example, during, president Trump's term he was frustrated with Jerome Powell for increasing interest rates uh at, at a time that 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 he felt was inopportune he he would prefer that he did not he was publicly calling out Jerome for doing that uh but it was it was challenging for him to do anything about it uh because you had that you know he, you know Powell had his term hmm. he was not doing anything illegal yet he's you know the bank's self-funded you know it, it's it's not like he can just say I'm gonna fire you if you don't uh, do what i want. Uh, and so that that's that's one way that, you know, throughout different administrations throughout time, uh the, the you know, a president can't just do something right before elections uh, in order to to change policy. Now, where it breaks down is, you know, I mean if if say the if say a government's debt is going to like default or something, you know, or if there's some sort of crisis, some sort of war, they can, you know, Congress can pass a law and force the central bank to do anything. They can say, "Look, you have to buy our debt." Um, or, you know, they can do all sorts of stuff like that. So really, it, it only gives independence in, in kind of a short-term, uh, you know, it avoids kind of that unilateral short-term centralization, but you still have that that problem of, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove during crisis, there really is no central bank independence.
1: Okay, so in September 2022, the Fed began operating at a loss. Uh, again, covered this in the article, and we'll make sure that it appears in the show notes. People really should read it. Um was firstly was this the first
0: time it happened, and why did it happen? So this is the first time in modern history. Wow. Um, there 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 are there are some similarities back in say the '40s or so, um, but it's certainly in modern history. Uh, this is the first time it happened, and the reason it happened is because you know we've had like 40 years of declining interest rates. Uh, and so there's never a time where they sharply raise interest rates so much that their liabilities are yielding a higher interest rate than their existing assets. Whereas in right. 2022, they raise interest rates so quickly that the interest that they're paying on their bank reserves and, and interest rates that they're paying on reverse repos are higher than the average interest rate that they're earning on their treasuries and their mortgage-backed securities. And so they, you know, the Fed now has an operating loss instead of a an operating income um and so they're they're now basically if they were a normal bank they would they'd be on the verge of insolvency yeah but because they're a central bank they're different
2: when the fed started raising rates everyone said that this might be a reason that they couldn't raise them for too long um clearly that's not paid out so why are they willing to uh, go into negative equity to raise rates sorry why are they willing to raise rates so high that they put themselves into negative equity
0: one reason is because of the way the accounting set up, they don't get kind of near-term consequences uh, for having negative equity. Um, and so the way that Federal Reserve accounting works, so right now they're operating a loss. They're no longer sending money to the treasury because they're not making money to send it to. But then what, what they're essentially doing is they're, they're eating into their equity, but instead of actually market to market and saying, okay, now we're actually approaching negative equity, they instead, they give themselves an asset it's called a you know basically it's a, it's a deferred asset so that in the future if they're ever profitable again they get to pay themselves back first they get to dig themselves out of this hole before they would resume having to give their excess profits back to the treasury uh, and so it's kind of like if you if you had if you had a business and it goes it starts to go bankrupt and you say well in the future there'll probably be a time when I'm not bankrupt and so all like you know you basically borrow from the future uh, from my future self to pay, you know, back when that happens. You know, that that's that's kind of the thing that the Fed's doing where they're they're approaching negative tangible equity, but unlike a normal bank, there's no consequences when they hit when they hit zero, there's no consequences immediately at least when they go negative. And so the the main difference is just that they can continue operating and and it's actually the main consequences are for the treasury. The treasury now has lost a hundred billion dollar income source. Yeah. And even at the even in the future, when the Federal Reserve is profitable again, if they're profitable again, uh, it would be a long time before that income source is recovered because the Federal Reserve would be not sending remittances to the Treasury because it would be digging itself out of its of its prior hole before it would ever begin uh, setting more money to the Treasury. So basically, the Federal Reserve is able to do it because the consequences are for the most part not on them; they're on the Treasury, they're on the taxpayer. Uh, rather than that. Now, if it goes on long enough and and kind of a, to a significant enough degree, you could start raising questions around central bank independence, right? Because if you're technically insolvent, um, that starts getting that you know that that's a different scenario. But that's a long, long way off. Uh, in this sort of intermediate phase, they have virtually zero consequences for this, and the consequences are instead on the treasury.
1: So this current situation is it getting worse? And and like how dire is it?
0: So it is getting worse. Um, it, it's probably going to continue for a long time. It's, it's, it's not as dire. So there's the reason I wrote this article, and is because a number of weeks, like a number of weeks, and months ago, I started to see basically these doom charts. Especially because the St. Louis Fed charting system is kind of broken for this particular uh, metric, and so it looks it looks really bad. And so there are a lot of people sharing that on Twitter. So I actually was inspired to make an article to say, okay, what what is what is behind this crazy chart that I see being shared around? Um, so the the short version is there's there's nothing going to explode because of this, right? There's there's no you know, there's no near term or even intermediate term, like wall that they run into for doing this. Instead, the, the main couple consequences, one consequence is that budget deficits are gonna be bigger now because you just, you know, that, that hundred billion dollar income source just completely vanished and is not coming back anytime soon, most likely. So that's, and that's like equivalent to four NASA's worth of, you know, expenditure right so it these days 100 billion dollars seems like nothing to people uh but you know nasa for example is like 25 yeah 25 billion so the u.s government lost an income source that that's one tangible uh consequence from this um on the other side of that the commercial banking system is basically getting paid pretty well because of this because all that all that negative Equity is basically draining out of the Fed and going into the commercial banking system. So they're actually making out pretty well. You know, those those liabilities, those higher liabilities from the Fed, uh, those higher yielding liabilities, I should say, that's paying out to banks. So banks are basically getting paid to do nothing. Uh, so they don't mind the situation. Uh, and the longer term potential consequence um, is you'll get someone like Senator Warren or others either complain that the Federal Reserve is is paying banks too much um, or you'll get people started to say like, hey, why do you have you know this much negative tangible equity? Uh, doesn't that threaten your central bank independence? Um, and so the, some of the some of the long-term consequences can build up by starting to uh, politicize uh, even more so what some of the Fed actions already are.
1: This show is brought to you by Fortress. Now, 4% of all Bitcoin transactions on an MOM basis go through Fortress, which equates to $7.7 billion since their inception in 2017, of which $3.6 billion happened last year, 2022, last year alone. Now, Bitcoin is more than just a holding asset. We see large organizations already using it in their day-to-day operations. And if you want to do this, you do not need to overhaul your system. You simply need to integrate Fortress to handle all your Bitcoin treasury operations. If you want to find out more about this, please head over to Fortress.com, which is F-O-R-T-R-I-S.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But I'm not selling your Bitcoin right now, are you? I hope you're not. Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up a DCA with twice-monthly Bitcoin buys, and I've been stacking sats all through this bear market. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash W-B-D. Also, today we have Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep all my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes Bitcoin privacy effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like in Wasabi 1, this is all done automatically. So all you need to do is receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, something, you know, I'm always moaning on about. Now, you also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't need to leak your IP address. And there is no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I'm taking a lot more seriously, and Wasabi 2 makes this so much easier. If you want to find out more, please head over to WasabiWallet.io, which is W A S A B I W A L L E T dot I O. And so, if the government have lost that income stream or the Treasury has lost that income stream, is there anything
0: they can do? The short answer is no. Um, they could cut expenditures but they're not going to so instead essentially what they do is they'll issue a, an extra hundred billion dollars worth of treasury securities and so the, the the debt will rise more quickly than it otherwise would have if this didn't happen and that's of course compounded by the fact that these higher interest rates on the debt are also causing more debt and so for example you know if, if they had 400 billion dollars in interest expense uh, you know, at a lower interest rate environment, they now have like $800 billion in annual interest expense at this higher rate environment. It could go higher than that. Um, and that's now, uh, they're not, you know, th- they're not cutting something to pay for that. Instead, they're just issuing more bonds than they otherwise would in order to cover that. So they're basically increasing their debt load in order to cover up the fact that their, you know, their, their interest on their debt is higher and they just lost an income source. So it, it kind of just it builds up over time.
1: Yeah, it feels like a precarious position because, you know, if we look at those layers, the likes of us, we're lending money at a very low interest rate to the banks. You know, they're using that to try and generate an income, but they're using the Federal Reserve or the other central banks as essentially their bank. Um, but, if they're, but they're all operating at a loss. So essentially, these central banks, which underpin all money in the global financial system, are... Kind of insolvent. It 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 doesn't feel like a. It feels very precarious.
0: Pretty much, and I think I mean that that manifests <laughs> generally through inflation. Uh, right. One 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 thing I like to highlight is that it's very different than two thousand eight. Two thousand eight banks were at risk due to basically deflationary collapse. There's way more claims than there were base money. Um, And so it was a risk of all falling apart. Now, instead, I I think the key risk is longer-term inflation. Uh, Doesn't mean you can't temporarily get the inflation rate down, but it means that as long as these forces exist, the inflation rate's bias is up. And so unless it's actively being held down, it's ready to kind of you know kind of keep popping up or kind of keeping a problem and one way to think about it is kind of like how how everything is a nested layer nested ledger right so so you know we have we have we have accounts at, at banks they have accounts at central banks and and central banks back up their assets with like government bonds uh, bailouts kind of happen upward as well so for example you know when um, you know, in the 90s you had long-term capital management, a big hedge, big giant levered hedge fund that blew up. The Fed had it had it bailed out. That kind of contributed to the dot-com bubble happening. That that all blew up. Then they cut interest rates, and then they, you know, we ha- had this big housing bubble. And when that kind of finally struck, basically the, the private sector was totally out of ammo. The the whole thing, the whole Ponzi was kind of being like uh you know, started to get marked to market, they basically pulled private sector leverage onto the public sector balance sheet. Um, and so it all kind of wound up on either the Federal Reserve in some cases or it wound up just right in in government deficits and debt. Um, and what we're seeing now is that when all that is is held up to the sovereign level, when you have all the debt goes up very high, the only place to kind of uh, release it from there is onto the currency, right So you get you get ongoing currency devaluation, ongoing you know off and on inflation, uh, in ongoing periods of time where, where, you know, however high or low yields are, they're spending most of the time below the prevailing inflation rate, and therefore savers, bondholders, all these types of holders in the system are essentially getting devalued, and that's kind of just spreading out the losses to anyone who's involved in the currency.
1: And this is kind of like when you said to me on a uh, last couple of interviews, you said, the The story of the next decade, you said, is probably going to be inflation. and and
0: I guess this is why It's a key factor, yes. I think that what what's going to drive inflation over the next decade is a combination of uncontrolled fiscal deficits um, by most of developed countries. Uh, and then two, uh, unlike with the past decade, there's there's not really like a buffer for commodities, so there's there's no real like commodity oversupply and deflationary commodity markets that can offset some of this. So you have the combination of money creation happening because deficits are high. Mm-hmm. Um, one way to think of it is that government deficits are a surplus for the private sector. Uh, so it's basically it, it's a type of it's a way that money kind of pours into the system, um, and then when you also have tight commodity markets, um, you know that that makes it so that those increases in money supply do translate into higher consumer prices pretty readily, and that's also true for things like labor shortages. Now you can have periods of time where. You know, if you get a recession, if they if they cause a big enough contraction in a period of time, you can get a temporary disinflation. You can get a temporary, you know, contraction. You can reduce demand enough to maybe suppress prices for a period of time. But I think those are going to be, you know, the cyclical things, whereas the structural thing is that inflation, unless, of course, they, they find a way to sharply reduce deficits, which is, I mean, at this stage of the crisis, uh, very, very hard to do.
2: So in the article, you compare what's happening now with um, the redeemability of gold in 1933. Can you like tell that story? I'd never heard that, and it the end of that story blew my mind. I did not know this happened.
0: Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell it in two parts. One is people often ask why can't um, a government just just why can't a central bank just forgive the debt it owes, like it owns to its government. Like if the Federal Reserve owns a lot of treasuries. Why can't there just be a debt jubilee and the Federal Reserve just forgives that portion of the debt because, you know, it's owned by the central bank. Who cares? Um, And the reason is if they did that, the asset side of their balance sheet would be, like, deleted. uh, And they'd still have all the liabilities. Right? So they, they would now have basically no interest income uh, and no assets backing up their liabilities. Uh, and yet they they'd have all these liabilities. So they would lose their independence, they would rely on funding by the government, and you, you would not have independent central banking anymore, right? So that, that's one reason why they can't happen. And so they actually faced a similar thing um, uh, back in the 30s, uh, which was you know back then, the Federal Reserve owned gold and basically you know the liabilities uh the monetary base represented claims for gold you could you could take your dollar and you can get gold with it at a fixed rate um but because you had a massive banking failure uh they wanted to increase the the you know monetary base but they couldn't increase the amount of gold in the system and they wanted to centralize all the gold uh instead you they, they severed the redeemability uh for gold they devalued the dollar relative to gold but then they also said the Federal Reserve has to transfer all of its gold to the Treasury. Um, but they couldn't just do that on its own because then the Federal Reserve would have all these liabilities and wouldn't have assets, right? So they instead said, okay, we're not gonna just going to take your gold. We're going to take your gold, and then we're going to give you gold certificates that represent the fact that you still kind of own that gold. Kind of. Uh, but they're not redeemable. Yeah, exactly. Kind of. So you here, here's like non-redeemable gold certificates. Kinda and it's like you know what what is a what is a non-redeemable gold certificate it's bullshit it's, it doesn't like it doesn't make sense it, yeah it's just like it's an and what it is it's an accounting gimmick all it is is saying that here's a placeholder asset that makes it so you're not insolvent um and that you know makes some degree of conceptual sense like yeah you, we took your gold here's your claim for the gold you just can't redeem it um and so that that's what kept the fed solvent for decades otherwise you know without that gold certificate there was really means nothing they would be unsolvent on paper because their liabilities would greatly exceed their assets because their assets gold were taken from them um and they they actually still hold those today they used to be a massive part of the balance sheet back when you know the, the balance sheet was measured in like billions of dollars uh but now that everything's so much bigger you know those gold certificates they're holding from like 90 years ago are you know like something like 12 billion dollars i mean they're tiny compared to the size of the federal reserve balance sheet today but they're still holding these like meme like these meme certificates like you know nine decades later and these these like accounting gimmicks that the fed's using now uh where you know when they when they lose money they instead have these deferred assets they're kind of the same sort of accounting gimmicks where they're they're you know they're approaching the period where they're insolvent uh, in, in terms of tangible assets but by having kind of these imaginary assets fill the gap, you know, it, it's kind of like magic, and then they're not insolvent. Lin,
1: how, how long can they go on like this for?
0: I think it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on what happens with commodity markets. Uh, it, would ha- it depends on what happens with trust in the system. Hmm. Right now, for example, whenever you see um, inflation indicators go higher, uh, usually the dollar strengthens uh, because people say, well, the Fed's got to get tighter then. Uh, and so that you know they'll fix this inflation by getting even tighter and so it actually strengthens the system. Uh, now I think when that breaks down is when they're basically so tight and and there's still a problem, people say, well, they can't even get any tighter um, and then they start essentially selling the system. So I think that the short end of it is that you can still go on quite a bit longer um in a similar way that you can look at Argentina or Turkey right now and you can ask like why is this still going on like why like if you're having, high double-digit borderline 100 percent inflation how is that still going Mm. on and it's it's a couple reasons one is that you know they don't really like there's no clear path to fix it in the countries uh and two they've avoided collapsing to the point of like say a lebanon or you know like an outright failed state they're kind of in that intermediate state where you know you're you know you're still you know there's you're still able to function in these countries and just the money systems is broken and just month after month quarter after quarter year after year it's like even more broken i I think you see like a light version of that today in a lot of developed countries where it's it's kind of broken but it's not broken so bad that it it you know leads to an outcome next week and so it just kind of keeps grinding on and so i i think that um you know, basically, it's just it's it's going to be a multi-year story of just you know I- inflation on average is going to be higher than than you know the target level, and there's going to be various kind of reasons why that is, debates about why that is, what the Fed should do. There might be periods of time where they get it under control, often I, probably ironically because of a recession, um, and they say, well, I mean, we we caused a recession and we got inflation down. And then you try to grow back out of that recession, and then you get inflation again. So it's almost like oh. it, can, it can go longer because it's it's not a straight line, and it's nowhere near hyperinflation. So you, you get that kind of long grind. And so uh, I think it can go on until you start to get really, really negative, tangible effects. And So, for example, one deadline is that by around the year 2035, Social Security goes bankrupt um and so what that would mean is that not not that they have zero payouts but that they can only pay out from incoming tax revenue which is insufficient and so you'd have to basically do a haircut for social security payouts which would of course piss a lot of people off and so in the in the run up to that you'd have a big issue um or alternatively they could increase taxes but then you'd get another group of people who would be pissed off um and so there are these kind of deadlines where certain things literally run out uh but in the next several years it's just kind of this ongoing background problem that people live with in a similar but less extreme way than people live with it in in turkey argentina uh and a lot of these other types of countries so i i just want to make sure by 2035 with like
2: current projection social security goes bankrupt yes wow
0: so the way the way it's been working um is that um basically they, they've had a surplus and they um, store that in treasuries. Actually, uh, it's like non-marketable treasuries. So they actually earn interest on their savings. Um, and just actually, right, right, as like last year, instead of that surplus going up, it's starting to roll over and go down. So now the program is so top-heavy that they're that they're paying out more than they're getting in. But they do have those savings to draw from. Uh, and so basically the, over the next call it 12 years, and, and sometimes the estimate changes like, you know, they used to think it was gonna be 2034 and then it's 2035. Like it's, it's, not big changes, but there's like, you know, a slight amount of variance for exactly when this happens, but roughly around 2035, that, uh, is it's about $3 trillion currently that surplus that'll be drawn down. And then you have a situation where, you know, you're already at this point, taxes are not covering the payouts. Um, but uh, there's no reserves to draw down either, and so you'd have to cut payouts or increase taxes. Some sort of resolution to that outcome, um, and and that's basically it's a, it's a somewhat different budget process than the rest of the fiscal budget. We sound so
1: fucked. <laughs> Excuse my language, Lynn, but we sound so fucked.
0: I, I I mean I think the way this I think the way this likely manifests over time is you get greater and greater polar, political polarization. Yep uh greater and greater just differences in opinion on how to handle that right i mean there's obviously some people that are like no no you have to raise taxes to keep paying for this stuff other people are going to say no no you you have to cut spending because taxes can't go any higher and it, it comes down to like either checks are getting get set or not i mean we have a smaller version of this every couple of years with the debt ceiling debate which is what we have this year uh, coming up so that, that's kind of a, a near term version but then the longer term version is that fiscal spiral that you have over 100% debt to GDP. You have interest on that debt. Uh, you have ongoing, pretty large deficits. And you have real world constraints in terms of labor, in terms of commodities, and things like that. And so basically, the public ledger is broken. Uh, that generally manifests in inflation um, and how high that inflation is partially depends on economic growth, uh, commodity availability. You know, maybe we have gigantic productivity breakthroughs and we push this out longer, or maybe we have war and we pull it up sooner, right? There's 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 all these factors that can influence the, the timing and the magnitude of what happens. But essentially, when you have these structural massive deficits and high debts, it generally manifests in inflation uh, grinding on over time until you have some sort of political consensus to figure out how to balance that out, uh, which generally only happens after a lot of damage has been done and after a lot of those debts have been effectively inflated away.
1: So how are you planning for this? Where are you putting your money, Lynn? That's what everyone's thinking. And by the way, just sign up to Lynn's new le- newsletter. She tells you everything you need to know.
0: I mean, the, the short summary of is that I emphasize hard assets right or you know I, I i i'm long things that are scarce and i avoid or i'm short things that i that are not scarce right so i i own things like energy pipelines energy deposits uh you know g- good cash flow producing companies uh gold and bitcoin right and then i i you know i'm, I'm i either avoid things like holding massive amounts of cash or i have a low interest rate mortgage for example so i'm effectively short uh the currency um now in periods of time like if i think you know for example they're going to tighten so much they're going to cause a recession then cash could be really good for like you know a, a 12 to 18 month period um because everything else does worse um so there certainly are periods of time like right now i think I, I i have some cash um basically i i focus on hard assets but i also focus on diversification and maintaining liquidity so that if there are these kind of periods of volatility i can rebalance into those things Um, and and it partly comes down to not being able to know the future and then two you have to kind of take actions that, that come and go i mean there could be regulatory actions against something like bitcoin there could be uh you know wars that break out so it's basically just diversification into a number of of things that i view as as being scarce and useful and avoiding things that i view as being abundant or or not useful
1: it's like lynn's time danny these days (laughs) Scarce, asset. <laughs> uh Lynn, wonderful as ever. When do we get to see you in person next? Is it going to be Miami?
0: It looks like it's it's shaping up that way. Yeah. All right. Well, I'd be happy to see you there.
1: Yeah, I would love to see you. It's been uh, it's been too long. We're all, we're all getting too busy now, and we don't get to see you as much <laughs> anymore. But looking forward. Oh, you missed the start, Danny. We are talking a little bit about Lynn's book that's coming.
0: Are you writing a book? I'm writing a book. Yeah, I actually have the very very first draft uh, written. And now I'm in the long editing phase, which is so it's still, it's still nowhere near completion, even though it's technically written.
2: Very cool. I've got one question before, we, I know we're really short on time, but um, at the end of the article, you kind of leave us on a bit of a cliffhanger, um, talking about how, so interest rates typically are seen as like a way of quelling inflation, but you say that might not be the case. So what's uh, What's this next article?
0: Uh, it might not be the next article, but it's an upcoming article, okay. uh, that, and I've already mostly written it, that talks about the relationship between interest rates and inflation. So basically, when you have high uh, inflation, uh, one of the ways that that people want to deal with it is higher interest rates, right? Because you say, okay, well, there's too much inflation happening, so you have to raise interest rates, hurt asset prices, slow down bank lending, and that'll slow down money creation and therefore slow down inflation, that, that was basically one of the one of the steps to do in the 70s. Uh, and that works as long as lending driven inflation is a the major part of why inflation's happening, why the money supply is increasing. Uh, that does not work very well if large fiscal deficits are what is driving the inflation uh, and driving that money creation. Uh, and so for example, in the 1940s, when you had massive, I mean, the highest inflation the United States ever got officially with 19% year over year, and that was in the 40s. And we kept interest rates at roughly zero um, because that that deflation was not caused from bank lending. Banks were barely lending at all. Instead, it was the, the large fiscal spending on the war. And so I, I think one of the challenges that policymakers are going to have during this upcoming years and, and, and decade or so is that when they increase interest rates to try to try to quell inflation they actually increase the federal deficit right because there's there's higher interest expense that they're paying out on the same amount of debt uh and that actually pours into the economy as an as a form of money creation and so on one hand you're trying to control bank lending driven inflation but you're making the fiscal inflation worse and if you have an environment like we do today where fiscal driven inflation is the bigger component of money creation than bank lending uh, then you can actually get a period. You can actually get a situation where higher interest rates exacerbate inflation, rather than make it worse. Or you can get a period where higher interest rates, you know, temporarily push down inflation, but then over the long term exacerbate it. Uh, and so, really, the only way to to fix inflation when you have fiscal-driven inflation over the longer term is to reduce those budget deficits. Uh, and so, as long as they don't reduce those budget deficits it's probably going to be a recurring problem regardless of what interest rates are. Maybe that's what we can cover in Miami in May then. Ha. Yeah, i definitely have the article out by then.
1: Well, Lynn, thanks as ever. We, uh, we only break our uh, in-person rule for you for obvious reasons. Uh, but it's great to see you and I cannot wait to uh, find out and get a copy and read this book. Uh, there's too many good books coming out at the moment. Uh, anyone listening, <laughs> you're going to have to buy Lynn's book as well as sign up for her email. And we look forward to seeing you in Miami.
0: Yep, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Lin.
2: Thanks, Lin.
1: I mean, is there any point asking you what you made of that one? We know how good Lin is. We know how good our content is. Have you signed up to her newsletter? It's only $199 a year. I always pimp this for her because it's so good. It's some of the most high signal content you'll get for that much money. So go and check that out. It's all linked up in the show notes. And listen, I don't love doing remote shows. I always prefer to do them in person. But every now and again, Danny's on my back. He's like, Pete, you've got to make this show. Come on. This article's amazing. And I read the article, how the Fed went broke. And make sure you do go and check it out yourself. It is in the show notes. But I agreed with him. We made the show. Also, just a big shout out to Danny. He's had a very, very tough weekend this weekend. He was all confident about Manu beating Liverpool. He was giving it large. So we had a 1 million sat bet and he went to bed all confident, woke up to a 7 0 defeat. Liverpool's biggest ever win over Manu and also Manu's worst defeat in 90 years. Poor lad poor lad had a terrible start to the week. Anyway, hope you're all well. Looking forward to seeing you all at the Bitcoin conference soon. Hopefully, we'll be catching up with Lynn there, making a show with her. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can drop me an email as hello at whatbitcoindid.com. You can jump into our Discord, join our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. Okay, have a great week, and I'll see you all on Wednesday.